0: Liberty Chroniclers, this is a day of mixed feelings. On the one hand, I am absolutely elated that I've been able to spend exactly two years now taking you through my conception of early American history and the story of early libertarianism as I see it. On the other hand, I am profoundly sad to announce that this will be the final episode of Liberty Chronicles. I have loved my time at the Cato Institute and libertarianism.org more than I could possibly express, and I've been absolutely honored to have this platform and your listenership. But by now, I've been working at another educational organization just across the Potomac for about a month, and it's time for Liberty Chronicles to come to a close. So let's give it a shot. It may not be the tidiest of endings, but as we know by now, history is a nasty, complicated, uncomfortable, and dirty business, and very few human stories end in neat and tidy fashion. Welcome to Liberty Chronicles, a project of libertarianism.org. I'm Anthony Comegna. In many ways, the timing is perfect. I had originally conceived this show as a replacement or supplement for the standard colleges early and recent US history courses, the first one usually covering the colonial period up to reconstruction and the second one picking up after the civil war running up to the present day. I wanted to give listeners a specifically libertarian take on the subject with a bit of a Marxist twist, using their concept of class formation and conflict as a foil to test our own theory along the way. As we went through the broad story of American history, I wanted to gradually tunnel down and get into the gritty details of libertarian history itself, especially its prehistory, that is, the history of the ideas and movement before Americans actually started using the word. That's where our loco came into the picture, and that has been the focus of the show ever since. And now that we are at the end of the early U.S. history part of our course, I fear I must do what virtually every other professor does after they've unceremoniously run out of time before the final exam. I have to leave reconstruction uncovered, I have to rush through the rest of the story in one class, and do my best to prepare you for learning everything else on your own. Fortunately, though, we've also been diligently at work preparing everyone to do just that, Without a doubt, you should have the tools and perspective necessary to take on the work yourself, continue unearthing libertarian history from below, expanding the story beyond its usual confines, and doing the labor of memory. In fact, some of my proudest academic moments have been when listeners have written in to tell me they are beginning research projects of their own to tease out one of the many threads in the history of locofocoism. we've started pulling here. Have at it, folks. There is much still to be done. So now, let me do my best to explain where we are in the long tale of American libertarianism, William Leggett's War on Monopoly, the saga of mushrooms and men, which has shaped individuals and nations across the world since its inauguration. Here's where they stood. We've seen that from the start, from the very first secret meetings of Leggett supporters in New York City, in the months before the candlelight nominating convention of 1835. From the very start, there were two main factions among the radicals. There were those who favored cooperation with Tammany Hall and the Democratic Party, ultimately hoping to co-opt them for the radical cause and sometimes for personal advancement. Then, there were the fervent separatists who wanted nothing more to do with the two main parties. In the original Equal Rights Party, the cooperationists won out as the National Party turned to embrace much of the radical program under Van Buren. As they closed up shop on their third-party operation, the Locofocos rose to great prominence, inspiring movements around the country. From tiny Allberg, Vermont, on the shores of Lake Champlain, down to Montgomery, Alabama, newspapers adopted the moniker Locofoco to describe their radical anti-monopoly politics. In the Canadian rebellions of 1837 to 39, our Locofocos played a key role both as intellectual inspirations and military combatants trying to spread republicanism around the globe. The very same New Yorkers who began and worked with the Equal Rights Party cooked up and supported the Door War right the way through the clambakes going into the 1844 election. By this point, partisans of all persuasions all around the country regularly used locofoco as a smear applicable to all Democrats they didn't like. Locofoco was supposed to terrify people to their core simply at the sound of it, conjuring up images of barricades in the streets during the French Revolution, blood running from the scaffold, churches torn down nationwide with temples to equal rights thrown up in their place. And naturally, all of this Whiggish fear is a sign of political success. No one would have bothered attacking them so strongly or making so much use out of their image without sufficient cause. But it wasn't just the Whig attacks either. Democrats of all sorts started jumping on the loco foco bandwagon, using the word to describe themselves when speaking to a friendly crowd or answering a difficult line of written questioning. And by the way, this was an important method for different interest groups to determine who to support in a campaign. They would put together a panel to write a letter to all the candidates ascertaining their views on questions significant to the group. When the Locofocos petitioned Van Buren and Richard Mentor Johnson about banks, money, and monopolies in 1836, Van Buren's answers were so lackluster that half the party wanted Johnson to be president, and they had to scrap the presidential nomination altogether. Throughout the late 30s and during most of the 1840s, then, Democrats fought the loco foco label less and less. It made for good campaigning with the base. They ate that equal rights stuff up, and it's not as though you'd actually have to follow through on it when in office. That's how we get people like Polk considered a major Locofoco in Congress during his term as Speaker of the House, or James Buchanan while he climbed the ranks to the presidency or Franklin Pierce, thanks to his support for the Door War in the New Hampshire legislature. Van Buren and his faction in New York called the Barnburners actually earned their loco foco chops by both courting the votes and supporting the policies. Overall then, leading into 1844, there were the majority of Democrats who would use the language in association with radicalism when expedient, and then there was the Van Burenite-Barnburner wing much more similar to the equal rights separatists. When Tyler annexed Texas, slavery quickly became the main dividing line. The Van Burenites refused to sell out the equal rights of northerners to satisfy the monopolistic demands of southern planter elites. But Polk squeaked through the nomination and election by playing up his reputation as an economic loco foco and a young American to boot. The Mexican War and its massive land grab in the West was like a bomb tossed into the Constitution's gearworks. And Van Buren's 1848 Free Soil campaign lit the slow burning fuse which eventually blew up the early republic. Despite Van Buren's personal desire to regain chieftain status over the Democratic Party, the Free Soilers capitalized on their presence in national politics as much as possible. Again, they doggedly stuck to their separatist inclinations and eventually provided the committed core of the Republican Party, the only truly successful third-party effort in our history. Throughout the 1850s and the many stories we've covered up to the Civil War, Loco Foco remained a common smear for all Democrats, even though most actual philosophical Loco Focos were now Republicans. By Lincoln's election... The word lost all practical meaning. Political alliances were now so shaken, so disturbed from the normal state of the old second party system that it really made no sense anymore. Even as a smear, why bother dredging up these arcane battles over money and banking in New York City when copperhead peace Democrats now threatened the nation's very existence? Many of those loco focos were the new president's strongest supporters. And ex wigs wouldn't want to unnecessarily rock the boat during such a ferocious storm. Why risk losing William Cullen Bryant's Evening Post or Martin Van Buren's endorsement of the war? Hell, the vice president himself was once openly and easily described as a loco-foco Democrat from Maine. Those old battles were over and now began a new phase in Leggett's War on Monopoly. The Locofoco movement was among its first casualties, a sacrifice to the war effort from many of the same die hard separatists whose strain of radicalism once stubbornly refused reunion with Tammany Hall. He died a few decades too early to be sure, but I'm fairly certain William Leggett would have gladly given up the word Locofoco if it meant actually accomplishing abolition. Anything, no, everything. For justice, As we've seen more recently on the show, during the Civil War, the Locofoco community split once again between those who stayed with the old democracy and those of separatist inclinations, who now had a dominant party and real political power in the GOP. The Democrat Locofocos hunkered down for a campaign of opposition politicking, though most of them seem to have despised the Confederacy and may have even given lukewarm support for the war. And that makes some sense, given that the South's Democrats basically abandoned their northern brethren to the tender political mercies of their enemies. Republican Locofocos did their best to advance the free soil platform in the GOP. They joined the old conscience whigs and Liberty Party abolitionists calling for emancipation. And ultimately, that coalition deserves most of the credit a far more reluctant president claimed for himself. But with all their support for the regime, these late-in-life Locofocos helped bury their own movement, obscure its legacy, and legitimize the massive state erected during wartime emergency. And given the way emancipation and reconstruction actually played out, many Locofocos may well have chosen to do things differently if they could fight the war over again. But as I said, we won't be able to cover reconstruction, and William Leggett was three decades too dead to offer comment. But now that we've run out of show, let me conclude with a bit about what I would have liked to cover before leading into the 20th century history and more about how we remember those Locofocos. I would have loved to continue the most recent Mushrooms and Men arc to elaborate more on the developing theory and language of class in radical liberal circles. It would have been great spending time on the Locofoco's cultural accomplishments because in so many important ways, those contributions have lasted while their political accomplishments were nearly all ephemeral and double-edged. I would have done more profiles in Locodom, covering Samuel Jones Tilden, who read William Leggett as a young law student, offered strategic advice to Van Buren in the 30s and 40s. He wrote for the Evening Post, He helped resolve the New York Anti-Rent War, and he was the man who almost became president in 1876. And to paraphrase a slightly higher-brow version of Jeff Foxworthy, if you think Tilden was elected president, you might be a neo-Confederate. Or we could cover John Bigelow, Leggett's successor at the Evening Post, biographer of William Cullen Bryant and Samuel Tilden, and one of the most important though overlooked figures in American journalism. Or there's Walt Whitman, who took young Americanism so far, he foresaw us building castles which floated in the skies. Or there's dozens of other interesting figures which dot this complex constellation. What about some Hawthorne and Melville to go along with your Whitman and Poe? I wish we could have talked about black nationalism and black liberalism after the war, when the white national government abandoned the very slaves it forced into freedom. How great it would have been to study the Garveyites, the black Hebrew Israelites, and their liberal counterparts like Timothy Thomas Fortune. I really would have loved diving into Benjamin Tucker's relationship to Lysander Spooner, the possible or probable interconnections between Locofocoism and Tucker's community of individualist anarchists and the actual mechanisms that turn Locofocoism into something recognizable as modern libertarianism. The process unfolded over decades and generations, mainly because the Locofocos left their intellectual children without a term that meant anything anymore. They accomplished a great deal to be sure, but now their posterity could take the triumphs for granted, like emancipation or general incorporation, without recognizing the 50-year movement that actually did these things. The Tuckers of the world had to look for something else, something imported, since homegrown radicalism long faded away into corporate republicanism. In 1876, as a matter of fact, most of the old Republican Locofocos went along with William Cullen Bryant back to their natural, ancestral home in the democracy. They voted for Tilden, Leggett's own protege of sorts who never really supported the Civil War and thought abolition was a harebrained, reckless scheme. But hey, the slaves were free now and shouldn't be complaining, and Tilden was at least a free trader, so let's give the D party a shot again. Sound like familiar reasoning? We've had a good century and a half of it now, and I at least fear we are deep into another libertarian identity crisis with the word itself at stake, and thus all the history attached to it. I would have loved to take the Benjamin Tucker story beyond the confines of the East Coast, traveling with early libertarians and individualist anarchists westward, like we did once before with our spirit medium Dorite, Fanny Whipple. Most of all, I wish I could have done a detailed arc on the good folks I call the Prairitarians, people like Moses and Lillian Harmon, who I first learned about thanks to David D'Amato and his excellent columns at libertarianism.org. Or the whole Laura Ingalls Wilder Rose Wilder Lane clan Out there on the prairie Doing whatever it is they did Learning radical political economy And individualism From whatever sources they learned it A lot of what I would cover from this period Would be relatively new to me too And speaking for my own private research agenda These folks are next on the list They had an interesting connection To other radical groups Like the free love community Or religious dissenters Including atheists This is the part of the tradition that gave us fascinating examples of innovation in social organization, like Josiah Warren's Time Store, and alterations to the family structure, like a wide variety of polyamories. Alongside the Tarians, in the same rough generational cohort, we find the first truly radical labor movement activists, ranging from the haymarket anarchist types to advocates for libertarian syndicalism and worker sabotage against the capitalists' unjust claims to artificial power and privilege. As clashes between the ownership class and their public and private police and working people increased, Benjamin Tucker's instinctive sympathies were nearly always with the workers, and he was never one to just take the state's word for it. Neither were any other members of the libertarian strains germinating in the later part of the century, even when they also wanted nothing to do with socialism, libertarian or otherwise. The Locofocos held a deep love and trust in democracy, but not our first libertarians. That damage had been done during the Civil War, and democracy's reputation was unlikely to recover in this crowd. Gradually, yet inevitably, those still associated with the history of Locofocoism simply died away. Every time a Martin Van Buren or a William Cullen Bryant breathed their last, the world lost one of its remaining links to a truly radical movement. The word died during the war, but the movement lingered on, person to person, mind to mind, heart to heart. In the Evening Post's John Bigelow may well have been the last major figure from the movement who lived. Bigelow died on December 19, 1911, nearly a century old. His lifetime connected the post-war of 1812 boom years with almost the entirety of American history up to World War I. It's an astonishing period for a single person to have lived through, start to finish, and Bigelow managed to be fairly well-principled and an effective change agent the whole way through. Nonetheless, he had to hop from one association to another throughout his life. Loco Foco Democrat, Free Soiler, Republican, then back to the democracy under his friend Sam Tilden. By the end of his days, the earliest and most significant of those associations meant almost nothing to anyone without Bigelow's lifetime of experience in American politics. In November 1900, after Teddy Roosevelt's victory, the New York Journal published a call for democratic unity, which put old divisions behind them. And the brief article gives us a good idea of where the very last of the Locofocos stood. Get together. The Democrats of the United States have lost seven years in fighting among themselves. There has not been a straight party contest within that time. The swollen Republican victories of these years have all been won by Democratic votes. The Civil War has lasted long enough. The time has come for Democrats to get together. Those who have stood by the flag through the years of defeat and discouragement are ready to strike hands with those who abandoned it. But they do not expect to give up their vote in the party councils. Gold Democrats and Silver Democrats, like Locofocos and Barnburners, have become merely antiquarian names. They have no present or future political significance. Henceforth, there are only Democrats. But a Democrat is necessarily an advocate of progress. The Democratic Party cannot possibly be an understudy for the Republican Party. This is something the conservatives will do well always to remember. A Philadelphia Inquirer article from the same year wanted to teach its audience the history of minor parties in American history, and so lumped the Locofocos alongside the Bucktails, the Anti-Masons, the Free Soilers, Liberty Men, hard-shell and soft-shell Democrats, doe-faces and fire-eaters, mugwumps and half-breeds. Locofocos were long-dead relics from a bygone era oddities of a very different past, very distant from us, which perhaps affected the present still, but decidedly did not define it. In 1905, former Speaker of the House General J. Warren Kiefer re-entered politics, and one editorialist recalled Warren's own term in political leadership, stating that, "...it was a time of angry debates, close decisions." Great partisan bitterness and still more intense bitterness between the stalwart and half-breed wings of the Republican Party. Conkling and Platt of New York quarreled with Garfield and resigned their seats in the Senate with contempt. The assassination of Garfield soon followed and Arthur was president. The Republican majority in the House was of the scantiest. In the Senate, it was nip and tuck, 37 Democrats and 37 Republicans. The so-called tidal wave of 1882 cut down the Republican representation in the House from 152 to 118 and swelled the Democratic side from 130 to 196. In view of the conditions, there was nothing to be wondered at in these changes. Speaker Kiefer, therefore, had a hard task. But those old animosities, so noisy once, are silent now. And the words stalwart and half-breed are become almost as hazy and in need of definition to the new generation as loco foco and know-nothing. Well, I'm happy to say that by now, more than a century later, I think loco foco has had quite a good comeback for the new generation. Now it's their turn to pick it up, do whatever they will with it, and make the world their own. And oddly enough, that's exactly where I would like to leave you in this story, given that we have to wrap it up so quickly. What more fitting end to this morality tale from history than the death of the very movement we have come to know and love. It's a depressing and sad arc to the story, but it is decidedly natural. One generation's battles or even wars fought over several generations, whole periods of history, those battles should never define future generations. We should use history to imagine new ways we can improve upon the past, and we should avoid reifying it at all costs. We should not, cannot, take the past as given, as though the world we've always had is the only world we can ever get or the only one worth fighting for. Conservation has its place, but history is the story of change, and when things go right, progress. If we simply stick to the stories we are told, If we accept the justifications of existing structures and orders through the authority of the past, if we give up our own power over the present to protect whatever has been our inheritance, we can never hope to improve ourselves and our condition. And the fact of the matter is that people are constantly, millions of times a day, making micro-historical decisions that always and forever amount to larger social changes. We will never end history until the last rational agent makes the last conscious choice, and I hardly think that's a goal worth pursuing, but we can certainly limit our own negative impact on history's development. The trite and overworn truism that historical figures are products of their time is, well, partly true at least, but it's entirely uninteresting and it renders studying history useless at best, positively damaging at worst. People are also products of their choices, and this popular saying excuses the immoral choices made in the past and ignores the individual's ability to exercise the power of decision-making. Every human being who has ever lived has had the capacity to be heroic like Benjamin Lay innovative like Stephen Hopkins, tireless like John Lilburn, fiery like Frederick Douglass, brilliant like William Leggett, visionary like Abram Smith, or thoroughly radical like Lysander Spooner. But the fact is, most all of us make positive choices to be less moral than we could be. And some awful few of us go so far as to erect entire institutions and civilizations whose purpose is to provide a shield for bad actors. Those bad actors then claim the title of king or emperor, they commission a series of official histories, and stamp people down into the subservient class with centuries of justifications and intellectual excuses for the raw exercise of force. It's dangerous, it's despicable, and historians have a positive professional obligation to correct the record and awaken people to their own agency. And don't ever forget that everyone really can be their own historian. I want to thank every listener who left a rating and review on iTunes. Everyone who has sent me their thoughts along the way, either on Facebook or Twitter, at Dr. Loco Foco. And at Libcron, everyone who shared the show and made suggestions for guests or topics. And I want to thank all our listeners in general. This is the end of Liberty Chronicles as it currently exists, though I will almost certainly be continuing the franchise in another form. Feel free to reach out and let me know your thoughts. You can still reach me by email at acomegna at or, of course, on social media. However, Liberty Chronicles continues, whatever its ultimate form, the project itself will go ever onward. I certainly will continue my end of the deal we've struck here. You couldn't drag me away from my Locofocos, my spiritualists, my free love anarchists, or my radical English dissenters, to name just a few. But I'll close with one final plea to each of you History is not an instruction manual, it is a cautionary tale. No intellectual tradition, no set of good or just ideas, no heroes nor villains are ever remembered unless we do the labor of memory. Our tradition, our ideas, our tales of heroes, and even our villains all deserve to be remembered. And we deserve to learn from their examples. Thanks for listening. I want to thank our long-suffering producer, Tess Terrible, for bearing with me while I found my footing, despite my persistent, let's even say stubborn, resistance to adjust my personal methods to new media. Finally, I want to give personal thanks to Aaron Powell for giving me the opportunity to do this show and for supporting it so strongly all the way through.